Hi everyone, my name is Umer and you're tuning into Generation Squeezes Hard Truths Podcast. I will today be chatting, as usual, with my colleagues Andrea Long, who is Gen Squeeze's Senior Director of Research and Knowledge Mobilization, and with Paul Kershaw, who is the founder of Gen Squeeze and a policy professor at UBC. We don't actually have a hard truth to share today. We're talking about the fact that this year marks our 10th year anniversary, and so we're going to look back at how we got started, what we were doing, the lessons we've learned and where, where we are now, and sort of try and construct a story. And we're going to do this over the course of two podcast discussions, one now and one next week. So, hi, Andrea and Paul. How are you both doing? Well, and excited to be here today, Mayor. It's very excited that we can talk about 10 years of Gen Squeeze. So let's just get started here. To begin with, I've been here a few months, you know, I, I still don't really know the origin story of Gen Squeeze. I mean, I know bits and pieces, but maybe that's a, that's the best place to start. Well, I guess the origin story, something that I can reflect on, it comes from various sources. Uh, and people will know about Generation Squeeze that we have this strong tie. Indeed, our lab is at the University of BC. And, and, and Generation Squeeze as a think and change tank has grown out of that lab that I have at UBC. And yeah, I think 10 plus years ago, I was part of something called the Human Early Learning Partnership, where we were really focused on um, a worrisome level of vulnerability that was creeping into our children as they were starting our school system in kindergarten. And I worked with great minds and great people who wanted to change our province of BC, change Canada, change the world. Indeed, my colleague Clyde Hertzman became very famous on the international arena, you know, working on children's rights. And as we were doing this work early in my career, um, one of the things that became clear is as we were putting evidence out there, we weren't having as much impact. Child vulnerability rates weren't coming down as quickly as we would have liked. And this drew my attention early on because I had the good fortune of training, not just in what makes people healthy, but also in political science, which shapes policy. And I was reminded as we kept working so hard to put our evidence out there that evidence is just one factor that influences people's judgments and influences public policy in the world of politics. And as I was going through my early career in the academy, and once I got tenure, I'm like, I need to practice being an academic differently than simply prioritizing getting our evidence out in peer-reviewed journals and occasionally doing a media interview. Because we know that politics responds to those who organize and show up. People will have heard me say that on various episodes of our podcast. And that made me wonder, like, how do we create a think and change tank that can show people are showing up in support of the evidence and really start to challenge the growing concern that I also had that like, wow, fake news is getting such a foothold into public dialogue and people are so good at spreading it. How can we bring for the evidence and empower the evidence what the fake news has working in its favor? And I think those two concerns led to the birth of Generation Squeeze and it's had many people and I hope I get to highlight a couple of them in particular, my colleagues Linnell Anderson and Eric Swanson. But the birth of Gen Squeeze, its origin stories has, a, has at its heart this observation that evidence is one factor driving our judgments. We want our judgments to be evidence-based. We want our policy to be evidence-based. But we need the evidence to be able to compete in the world of politics with people's values and a range of power dynamics that make the status quo so strong. And how can we use our evidence to disrupt that status quo and invite people to join us in making that disruption so that we can improve our public policy and improve 
our society's health outcomes. I do think that Gen Squeeze is unique. I think it's a little bit was a little bit ahead of its time at that moment in terms of recognizing that part of the role of the academic sector and the research that professors and others have the privilege of doing is to actually get that information out into the world and make sure that information informs our thinking and our judgments. And and I think there's been a gradual sort of shift in that direction from universities, from academic granting agencies to really put a stronger emphasis on what they like to call knowledge mobilization or knowledge translation. And that's great. I mean, that's phenomenal to see. But I think GenSqueeze actually was at the early parts of that wave of change uh, in recognizing the importance of not just answering the questions that are there, but actually taking those answers and saying, hey, how do we actually implement this answer in the world? Um, so I think it's a really a little call out, I guess, to some of the early vision that Paul had and, and some of the others who were involved at the early stages of the organization. You know, when I when I reflect back on it, uh, ten years ago, you know, we people have heard me talk about, hey, we're GenSqueeze 3.0 now, and, and GenSqueeze 1.0 really was a collaboration with this wonderful colleague that people would have heard in previous episodes of our podcast, Linnell Anderson, and she was working with me at the Human Early Learning Partnership, and she's one of the strongest intellectuals and change makers we have with respect to childcare in the country, and. We had been working together on on work related to childcare, parental leave, work life balance, and you know, as I said, like Gen Squeeze grew out of this focus on the human early learning part, on child development, and we literally had been giving hundreds, if not thousands, of presentations talking about how kids are vulnerable when they start school, and we thought that we were going to be helping people come to recognize that oh, there's some changes going on in our society that's making it harder for the generation raising young kids. But when we eventually weren't having the impact that we meant to have, we started doing some focus groups. We learned that actually we were causing many people, including in particular many mothers, to start feeling guilty. We were giving evidence and people were interpreting it as an individual problem that they might be individually failing at something when in fact our evidence was showing there's a big systems problem going on. You know, hard work's not paying off for young adults these days. At the moment they're rearing kids, it creates a whole bunch of financial squeezes, a bunch of stress, and that makes it then harder to get our kids off to the optimal start that we want. But that's not the message that people heard. And so Linnell and I took that evidence about, oh, people are hearing us so differently, and we started thinking we need to operate differently. And that really was the genesis of Gen Squeeze 1.0, where we started to create not just good evidence, but like a, a movement focusing our communications, engaging people in thinking about how could we have a new deal for families where we would have $10 a day childcare, a better parental leave system with more time for moms and dads to be at home with their kids and foster more work-life balance at the beginning of their lives with their kids. And I'm really proud that that was Gen Squeeze 1.0. And it definitely relates to some of our great success stories of like, hey, probably the biggest financial impact we've had is on shaping the billions and billions and billions of dollars that are now invested into $10 a day childcare. And on top of that, we've grown to do so much more. But the origins of the story with Linnell's leadership around this new deal for families, it's, it's an exciting time to reflect back on. And, and I'm actually, you know, as we do so nostalgic for that, that really key collaboration with a wonderful colleague and friend and, and femtor. Okay, so there's lots there, but I guess just to go back to the idea of this being an origin story, I mean, for me, you know, that's a reference to like superhero origin stories, and uh, that's probably not how you took it. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, and I, you know, what you always look for in a, in a superhero origin story is that there's a kind of vulnerability or flaw that actually gets turned into 
or is a stimulus for that origin of that superhero. And I, I wonder if, you know, maybe this is drawing on that metaphor a bit too much, but I wonder if the idea that academia had certain limits, if that was sort of the, the main spring, that, that vulnerability that academia can become this very, you know, very rigid silo where you're just publishing in journals that, you know, the 13 academics in your field read. Plus my grandmother. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I wonder if that's like a good uh, marker. I think that's a fair way to characterize, you know, one of the flaws in my pre-gen squeeze approach to trying to make impact where I thought, oh, you know, if I'm lucky enough to go get that PhD and I have the evidence about a range of policy decisions, policy problems that need correcting, then I can bring that, that information into the halls of power and I will help politicians and high-ranking bureaucrats see the gap between what we're doing and what the evidence says we should be doing. And because I somehow brilliantly brought it to them, they would respond and magically close the gap. And notice in the version of telling that story, who was the hero of the story? I was. And I think what Jen Squeeze came to do in collaboration with my lovely colleague, Linnell Anderson, and then others who have, who have been so important along the way over the last decade is that we knew that the role for Jen Squeeze was not to be the hero of the story but to support others to join with us. And by their joining with us, they become the heroes of the story, making the change that we need to see in the world in no small part, because as the moral of one of our stories is that politics responds to those who organize and show up. A few academics with a bunch of evidence, it doesn't constitute enough showing up. Citizens joining forces with us as a think and change tank, that's the heroic activity that creates the political cover for our politicians to respond bravely to the evidence that uh, there's this big gap between what we're doing and what would be so much better if we were doing to promote people's well-being. And I'm not the superhero movie fan, I will confess, uh, but I, you know, I think the way you framed it there, kind of like, how is Gen Squeeze a response to a personal failure is actually a lovely, a lovely way of framing it. Thank you, Umer. Yeah, and I don't want to also say that, you know, it's all a vulnerability, like the fact that you are an academic, because there's lots of strengths. Oh. No take pride in that. It's hard to discount us because of our academic qualifications. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that, that we have to keep both of those things in mind, that there are strengths and, and vulnerabilities. And then Gen Squeeze, in a way, is a means to kind of correct some of the limits. I don't know, that seems appealing to me to frame it that way. Um, getting back to the details of the story itself. So you say that the initial focus was on children, and that's not no longer the case, right? I mean, that's not, we do focus on childcare and families. Family policy is now one part of a broader mission for us. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, so I almost wonder... Why did that happen? Well, maybe, but before getting to that, maybe the, the name, because then the generation that you were thinking about... Brilliant, yeah. So back in the day when, with the leadership of Linnell Anderson, we were thinking about how to make progress on better family policy, 10-day childcare, better parental leave, better work-life balance. And we were supported by the Vancouver Foundation, which has been, so for those who don't know the Vancouver Foundation, it's the largest community foundation in Canada. And it has been the most consistent supporter of Gen Squeeze uh, over our history. In fact, it made an investment that allowed us to birth Gen Squeeze. And the long and the short of that is people at the Vancouver Foundation noticed that Linnell and I were doing good work on public policy related to families with kids, one of their priorities, but thought we could be better at communicating it and better engaging people in supporting the policy changes that were being recommended. And so they put us in touch with a really talented communicator. I often call him the sort of like mad artist genius, Angus McAllister. 
who worked with us to help frame our issues differently. And I will confess that when that happened, when that first time, I was a little bit like, that's nice. You, you think we're good and you think we can better. I always think that we can improve. And I remember the first day I met Angus McAllister. We had a meeting and Angus has a bit of a reputation of being a little late. I think he would confess to that. And so we were 45 minutes into a meeting and he still hadn't showed up. And, you know, I was annoyed. I will confess I was annoyed. I'm like, I don't have time to be sitting around for 45 minutes waiting on somebody I don't know. And that doesn't seem respectful. So I was leaning away from Angus McAllister the moment he walked in the room. So he had 15 minutes left in the meeting and he absolutely used those 15 minutes and blew my mind and made me realize, oh, there's so much we could be doing better. And one of the things that he helped us notice from the very beginning was actually a a cure for that flaw that I saw in terms of how we were communicating and parents were hearing what we said is like, individually, we must be doing something wrong. And Angus's observation is start where you want people to finish. You think this is a broader systemic problem, a broader problem at the population level? Well, how do you describe it as a population level problem? And we landed on, oh, the language of generations can do that. And so we talked about the generation squeeze because we were squeezing the generation of parents raising young children. And that then allowed us to start showcasing how things have been growing harder for our younger generations, our hard work not paying off. And it did lead to our identifying a range of intergenerational tensions. We're investing so much later on in the life course for medical care and old age security, but we couldn't be more generous with parental leave or with childcare. It clearly wasn't a money issue or our society was investing larger dollars later in the life course, but not doing it earlier on. And you can just see then how those conversations started to bring us to oh, the source of our problem has as part of its challenge this intergenerational tension. And so Generation Squeeze, as a label for our movement, our Think and Change tank, captured talking about a population that was experiencing some harms and hinted at a systemic problem, this intergenerational unfairness. And those two observations coming together in our evocative name really set us on a course that at first did continue to prioritize a new deal for families. And then over time, people were like, huh, you know, what more can this think and change tank do with regards to the problems facing young adults more generally and intergenerational unfairness more generally? So it's interesting to hear about the origins of the generational concept, which has really become the core anchor for what the organization does. And it's been that anchor, I think, across the iterations that Gen Squeeze has taken over the last decade, because there have been a few different sort of tactical changes, I guess, in, in thinking about how do we bring that generational lens, that analysis of the system in which younger folks are operating and the challenges they face within it to the world more broadly. So I guess I, I'm curious, Paul, what you think about how that generational lens sort of played through the the next iterations of Gen Squeeze all the way to sort of where we are today, where Umer and I have joined the organization. It's a really great observation. And I, I think that our focus on the New Deal for Families prioritized some good communications tactics. And that is such a big part of the Gen Squeeze strength. We bring strong communications to what we do. We put a lot of effort into thinking how do we frame the issues to tap into people's values and and have people view these issues differently and in ways that are gonna cause them to lean in. And as we were fighting for $10 a day childcare and improvements to parental leave and work-life balance for families with young kids, we often said, you know, it's hard to solve the housing problem 
it's so much easier to make a public investment to bring the cost of childcare down so it's not another rent size payment or to invest in parental leave benefits so it doesn't cost the equivalent of losing another mortgage payment when you're on leave. And we, we use that language so much, very effectively, I might add, because that's what turned up in the federal budget when they eventually invested in $10 a day childcare. But we use that language so much, people said, you know, you should start talking about the housing problem itself more. You keep making the comparison and you're saying it's hard to address. And yet, isn't there more you could do on that? And to be honest, they were right. And so Gen Squeeze 2.0 was birthed out of a response, a birth out of people saying, please, hey, this is working on, the, on family policy, but there's more to do. And so we asked ourselves, how can we broaden the mission of Generation Squeeze? And that went hand in hand with just a lovely opportunity Whereas Linnell Anderson very generously was saying, you know, her skill set was around our family policy issues. She was seeing the pressures for us to broaden. And she said she would take a step back from the organization so that we could free some of our scarce dollars to invite a different set of expertise in. And that allowed us the opportunity to welcome Eric Swanson onto the team. And Eric became Jen Squeeze's first executive director. And I remember the day we interviewed him. And he was asking us a range of questions about what we wanted next to do and as we were broadening our scope and how we thought we could make our think tank be more effective at being the change tank that we wanted it to be. And in that interview, he said, you know, you sound in many respects like you want to be what he called the CARP for Younger Canada. CARP, our listeners may not know, is a Canadian Association of Retired Persons. And he was saying, it sounds like you want to be the, the voice for younger Canada. And if you have a voice for younger Canada, a voice for older Canada working well, then those two voices will make Canada work well for all generations. And so Eric Swanson helped in Gen Squeeze 2.0 really build Generation Squeeze into this voice for younger Canada. That is how we, that's how we branded ourselves in Gen Squeeze 2.0. And it opened the door for us to take on increased focus on what had emerged as the piece of our economy that was just hammering younger people more than anything childcare was the second most expensive thing in people young people's lives more so than even post-secondary but housing was crushing people and it wasn't just limited to the generation raising young kids it was young people more generally and that allowed us our strategy said to attract a greater number of people who were interested in that issue. And as we grew more people being associated with Gen Squeeze, we were augmenting the power of the organization because we know that our power grows with the size of our alliance, our coalition, our network. And so this was this wonderful, brilliant insight that literally Eric Swanson brought in his first interview. And then we spent many years together growing this voice for younger Canada. And that would be Gen Squeeze 2.0, where we added climate change, we added housing policy, and the sophisticated comprehensive analyses of all the policy tools we need to pull to address those big challenges and then started to anchor those in our calls to change government budgets. You know, I, I've never met Eric, but uh, even before I joined Gen Squeeze, I had read the stuff he'd written and I would just like always think like, okay, this is brilliant. Such a smart guy. And you know, I say this as someone now who does have my like PhD hat on. I work at the academy and we so often at the academy are very hierarchical. And so, you know, there's structures around who has a PhD and who has doesn't. And we often then make judgments about people's academic and intellectual strengths. And one of the things I love about Gen Squeeze is that actually I know some of the most brilliant people that I work with are not in the academy. And actually it's been finding people well, like Umer and Andrea on, 
on the podcast today, um, people like Eric and Linnell, those have actually been just like really the, the inspirational big minds that have transformed the work that I've done. And so I'm glad that you recognized that then in his work. He was a he, he remains a great, talented, clever strategist, big thinker about policy ideas, and has the ability to synthesize. Um, when Eric worked with us, we often talked, okay, we now need you to swantify what we were producing in the lab. How are we going to communicate this and engage people much more effectively? So swantify was a verb for us. So just in terms of the switch from 1.0 to 2.0, around what time did that happen? So 1.0 was growing from like 20... In around 2010, and then we actually, we, we just learned that we got the GenSqueeze.ca URL uh, in 2012, hence our 10-year anniversary. In November 2010, right? In November 2010. So we were really like bang on. 2012. Pardon me, November 2012. So we're like bang on a 10-year anniversary. Way to go for us celebrating that. We need to celebrate more. And actually, we need to start talking about what if, not just how our strategy changed, but what did we achieve? And then Eric started to really help us create uh, 2.0 around 2015. And then, well, we'll get to where we are now at 3.0, which has really started to take root, um, you know, in 2021, 2022. Well, uh, so maybe uh, just briefly on on 3.0, I think the key change there is, you know, recognizing that being the voice for Younger Canada was an important way of, you know, validating those anxieties and the concerns and the pressures and the challenges young folks are facing with rising costs and declining wages and deteriorating determinants of health. But I think the key observation or one of the key observations that drove the next transition for the organization is that in order to actually make the systemic shifts, the changes in our political institutions to address those challenges, we need older generations to jump on board. We need them to recognize where some of the challenges are in our sort of historic assumptions about who's deserving of support, who's vulnerable in our society, and how those assumptions have driven our investment patterns. So you already hinted, Paul, at the idea that, you know, we are really have skewed our investments towards investing uh, in medical care for folks once they're already ill. Uh, we also invest heavily in things like retirement income security and creating those public pension systems and medical care systems was really critical when seniors were most likely to be poor in Canada. You know, we had people, seniors becoming poor because they couldn't afford medical care because they didn't have enough income to be able to live with dignity. So those are real policy successes and milestones we should celebrate more. Well, they motivate us. We do. I mean, we constantly point to Canadians. We've done this and we've done it. It's worked. But let's now replicate that for younger demographics. It, it so motivates us. It's not a problem. It's the reason we exist to like, let's amplify it and extend it throughout the life course. Yeah, exactly. So I think that that notion that we need to, you know, think about how vulnerability and risks have now shifted largely to younger demographics and replicate the kind of ambitious and brave and really successful response we had to the same situation that faced older folks uh, is what's really driving our shift in 3.0 to focusing Gen Squeeze, really trying to brand this idea of generational fairness, that what we're looking for is to invest fairly in Canadians, young and old alike, and to really have older Canadians recognize that they're invested in the young folks that they love, and they want to leave a positive legacy for younger generations. Um, but that 
we're not necessarily doing that right now. That legacy, there are some problematic parts of that legacy that are on the table that we need to address. And if we don't get to fixing some of those pieces, uh, we're not going to be able to also address the squeeze facing younger Canadians. Right. So if I'm able to try and frame the Gen Squeeze 2.0 model, it's kind of sees young people as a distinct interest group that's fighting to, for its rights, right? And this challenge of trying to build this community of interest among the various kinds of young people that, that exist across Canadian society, would that be a fair characterization? I think so. When I think about Gen Squeeze over the last decade, I think it's, you know, right now, maybe it's like a trilogy. I often think about movies. And so I think Gen Squeeze 1.0, the organization's role was as this captain. We had a really good plan, a new deal for families. And we were hoping that we could put that plan out there, have people follow it, and we would support the generation raising young kids. Gen Squeeze 2.0, that plan wasn't accepted as quickly as we would have liked. And so we were like, oh, partly it's not getting accepted because... Younger people in their prime childbearing years, they're getting beat up. They're like they're being told they're lazy, they're whiny, they're entitled, they're consumerist. And there are a range of these myths that were being imposed upon them. We're like, oh, Gen Squeeze 2.0, our role is as a defender. We've got to bust those myths. We've got to stand up for a younger demographic and help them stand up for themselves in response to these harmful cultural myths about them. And I think where we're at at Gen Squeeze 3.0 is now we're more like a rebel character. We're like, okay, younger demographics don't just need to be defended. We all need to be supporting one another to actually disrupt this dysfunctional system. That there is a the status quo has become so problematic. We need to resist that, disrupt it enough, and build something better. And so I think, you know, in many respects now, Gen Squeeze 3.0 as a character in a movie is like the rebel with a cause. And our cause is generational fairness. And we put that cause out there because. 2.0, we did well at talking about housing unaffordability and climate change and underinvestment in the families with young kids and leaving large government debts. And we, we were struggled to have people see like our, the common disease underneath those symptoms. And I think we did that because we did learn early on in 2.0 that many people don't really resonate with the cause of generational fairness. They're not quite sure what that is. They understand classism and racism and sexism and so on, but not so much generational fairness. And so we thought we'll meet people where they're at. I think 3.0 is we're moving to the rebel with the cause version of the organization. It worries that we don't have that much time left to only meet people where they're at without bridging them more quickly to this underlying disease of generational unfairness that pops up with symptoms in so many places. And so you'll see us now with our hard truths. It may not be where people are at or where their heads are always thinking. So we're going to like, we have to share this with you now because it's so urgent to move us to save whatever affordability remains in our dysfunctional housing system, save whatever, you know, sustainable climate remains after global temperatures have been rising and we put so much carbon in the atmosphere, save what opportunities to budget for all generations exists when we've left larger and larger debts pre-COVID and to save our opportunities to invest in people's well-being and not just rely on this medical care system that's on fire because we haven't slowed the flow of sickness into our emergency rooms. I think that's this, this, this heightened urgency right now more than ever. And I guess after 10 years, you're like, at least I'm feeling that, that I'm personally feeling that. I'm like, we just gotta make progress faster. And I'm hoping 3.0 is how we're gonna do it. So I think that's really helpful because I was sort of thinking, okay, so if the Gen Squeeze 2.0 model is kind of co trying to constitute young people as an interest group fighting for their particular rights, 
And I think with Gen Squeeze 3.0, as you're describing, it's this effort to suggest that actually this is not just about the interests of young people. This is also like this is about fairness, which is in the interests of everyone. And I think what's interesting about Gen Squeeze 3.0 is that, you know, on the one hand, we are wanting to tell still hard truths that are often to be especially hard to hear from those who are older in our families, who love us, who care for us. And then we're saying, and the legacy being left isn't exactly what you might have hoped. And that's causing hardship for younger and future generations. And simultaneously, you know, also wanting to like say, that doesn't mean we're pitting generations against one another because our goal actually is intergenerational solidarity. That's our show, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you again for part two next week. 